Turn in your Bibles for our sermon today on to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians 13, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 10 today. Let's read together. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 says, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Our God, you tell us that those things that are spiritual can only be spiritually discerned, that the mind uh, without Christ cannot understand these things. And so we need your Holy Spirit to help us to understand these spiritual things in your word. And you tell us also, no one knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit that is in him. Only you know our thoughts. We pray that as we come to your word, you would search us and try us. And that you would reveal uh, truths to us, not only in your word, but also in our hearts. Apart from you, we can do nothing, Lord Jesus. And so we pray that we would draw near to you, that your spirit would help us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, maybe some of you are procrastinators. Maybe you're a procrastinator. 
Maybe you were those, one of those people in school or in college that waited to study for the exam until the night before, and so you spend uh, all of that night awake studying for the exam. Or you wait to write the paper until the night before, you're, so you're up all night writing. And maybe you're one of those people that you wrote the paper at, at night and you had to turn the paper in and your printer broke. And so you go to the professor and you say, sorry, I don't have my paper, my printer is broken. And you fail to mention that you had three months to get that paper printed out. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you are a procrastinator. Well, some of you might be, others of you might not be, but Paul is writing this part of the letter to tell the Corinthians to stop procrastinating. To not procrastinate because there is an exam that is due. There is a deadline that is coming. Paul is saying here that he is coming to visit the Corinthians for the third time and that there might be some sin in their own lives and among the church and that they need to deal with this sin that they may be procrastinating about. And so the main point of this passage is there in verse 5 where Paul says, examine yourself, take the test, stop putting the test off because the deadline is coming. Paul is coming. So there are two ways, Paul says, that we can deal with this. You can not take the test, and I'm going to show up, and I'm going to fail you. More importantly, in the eyes of God, you're going to fail. Or you can stop procrastinating, you can take the test, and you can see what you are short at, what you need to fix, and we can get those things straight before I come, and then it will just be a happy reunion. Everything will be great. Paul recommends, he commands, that they take the test, that they stop putting it off. Because if they don't, if they procrastinate, things aren't going to go well for them. And so the main point of this passage for us also is that we would examine ourselves. Uh, to use language from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He says, let a person examine himself. And we're not going to get into what exactly that means to examine yourself before the Lord's Supper. But he says, examine yourselves Because by not examining yourself, some of you are sick and others of you have died. Some people procrastinated. They didn't want to take the test. They didn't examine themselves and it had deadly consequences. And so Paul says, examine yourselves. And then in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. If you take the test and you take an honest, brutal evaluation of yourself, it will prevent you from being judged by the Lord. And so the principle applies to us. Paul's not going to show up on a visit anytime soon for us. 
But we can say the same thing for ourselves. If we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged by the Lord on that day. The Lord is coming back, and all of us one day are going to die. So either way, at some point that you don't know, you will face the judgment seat of Christ. You will be judged by the Lord. Don't procrastinate. Better to examine yourself today, right now, so that on that day, you will not be judged in a negative sense by the Lord. So let's examine ourselves for this morning. Let's look at this passage. Uh, In the first part of the passage, verses 1 through 4, Paul gives his forewarning. And then in 5 to 10, he calls them to self-examination. So first, the forewarning. Uh, Read verses 1 to 3 again. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. So again, go look at verse 1 again, and you see that Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Uh, The first time was when he went to plant the church. The second time is when he makes that painful visit where he was trying to fix things and things just blew up. So that was not good and he had to leave. And now he's writing this letter to tell them to get ready. He's coming a third time. And so this is the point of the self-examination. Examine yourselves because I am coming. Then he says... uh, In the second part of verse 1, that every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's referencing this law in Deuteronomy that for justice, for fairness, that accusations need to be verified by witnesses. And so uh, we have that same kind of process in Matthew 18 for the church. Uh, Charges must be established by Multiple people with evidence. Paul seems to be using this language, this verse, this concept. Uh, He's not saying, uh, I'm coming to you a third time, and so that's my third witness against you. And that, well, he he is saying that, but he's not saying that's what the law says. Um, He's not saying, look, my, my evidence is established because I've warned you three times And this is the third one, so it's all done. But he's using a a metaphor. He's using an image. He's taking the words out of the law in Deuteronomy, and he is saying that he is the third witness. He is the one who witnessed against them first, and then second, and then a third time. So I don't think he's saying, like, look, this is my evidence, and you're definitely guilty of the charge. No, he's just saying Just like people would come to a court case with two or three witnesses, I'm coming to you with a charge, and I've come to you now, it's going to be three times. And so he goes on, this is what he's talking about in verse 2. I warned you before, 
I warned you when I wrote 1 Corinthians to stop all of this immorality. And then uh, I did it again when I was present on my second visit. And now he says, I warned them now while absent. Now in this letter, he is warning them again. Examine yourselves. Because if not, I will not spare you when I come. You will receive the discipline that comes upon unrepentant sin. You will receive the judgment. I will not spare because I've already warned you three times. Now, why is Paul bringing this up? Why is he so strongly warning them and in some ways threatening them that he is not going to spare them? He's going to bring discipline. Well, he tells us in verse 3, since, or because, because you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. This is the whole issue in Corinth. They're doubting Paul's apostleship. They're doubting that Paul is truly sent by Christ. And so they're saying, Paul, Christ is not speaking in him. He is not a real apostle because Paul is so weak. We've seen that over and over in the letter. And so Paul is saying, look, you want me to be a tough guy? You want want me to show how I'm the, the tough guy? Well, I'm about to come. And if you don't fix things, if you don't examine yourselves, I'm not going to spare you. I'll be the tough guy. I'll play tough guy on you since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Their idea of an apostle is macho man, tough guy. I mean, Paul says, do you really want the tough guy treatment on you? Obviously, they don't. But this is what Paul is bringing up. His toughness, if you want to call it that, his, his discipline is only going to come if they have unrepentant sin. And then he says in the last part of verse 3 about Christ, Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Christ really is working through Paul. It's just not really the way that they understand it, not the way they think. Christ really is dealing with the church. And this is what Paul is saying. If you don't repent of your sin, and if I do have to come and exercise discipline, that is Christ dealing with you. Christ works powerfully among you. Christ is powerfully at work in his church. But it's not through those, all those signs and wonders that everybody else was bragging about. It's not through all the show of the super apostles. No, Christ's power is at work to deal with sin in the church. Now, for us today, again, we don't have Paul coming to visit us, and we also don't have apostles around. Uh, It is true that elders of the church are called to lead the church in the discipline of the church, but elders are not apostles. 
We can't say what the elders will do. That's that's the will. That's what Christ is doing like, like an apostle would be doing. But we can still say that Christ is at work among his churches and he works through the apostolic message. Through the word of God, which is given by the apostles. And so how does Christ work among his church? How is Christ powerful among his church? It's through this message that the apostles have given. Christ works through the word of God. As long as scripture is taught, that is Christ working among us. The truth of the scriptures. And so this is something that we need to remember this general point that even though we don't have apostles around today, we need to remember that Christ really is among us. Christ is working powerfully in his church. You see this in the letters to, to uh, the letters of revelation to the different churches. And it says that Christ is walking among them. Christ is evaluating every church at every moment, and he will remove lampstands if he has to. He will remove his presence if a church teaches against the teaching of the apostles. The church teaches against the word of God. If the church continues in unrepentant immorality, and Christ can come against his church. One example is the letter to Sardis, where Jesus says, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You understand that? Do you have that category in your mind that Christ can come against churches? Christ is at work powerfully among us. There is a realm of spiritual war that we don't see going on, but it's happening. It's like uh, the great story in 2 Kings chapter 6 with Elisha. And... Israel is being surrounded by the armies of Syria and the young man with Elisha is terrified because he sees these giant armies of Syria and Elisha says, do not be afraid because there are more with us than with them. And then he says, praise to God, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And this young man's eyes are open and he sees that invisibly there are horses and chariots of the Lord of hosts and his army that are surrounding Israel. And that's what we can say about the church of Jesus Christ. Those true churches of Christ, there are more with us than with them. They're surrounding with what we cannot see, the Lord of hosts and his armies protecting and defending his church. And so for Satan and for the world to come against the true churches of Christ is foolish. It is a terrible mission to be on. 
Satan will not advance against the churches of Christ. But what about us? For us too. We also need to remember that we are called to be faithful to the word of God. Faithful to the teaching of the word of God that Christ might not come against us. And so we need to be faithful to the word of God. We need to be faithful to holiness. If we are in unrepentant immorality, Christ will come against his church. And we need to be faithful to pursue love and peace and unity in the church. Because what we do in this place and the way that we live our lives as members of the church and the way that we interact with one another is all as Christ walks among us. And Christ is powerful among you, just as Paul said those words to Corinth. Now, how is Christ powerful? Well, Paul goes on to explain in verse 4. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Christ is powerful because he's alive. He has the power of God at work in him. And he says, for we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. This is how Paul understands his ministry. This is his paradigm. It's the lens through which he looks through his life and his ministry. And this is the lens that you need to have. You know, if you go to the eye doctor sometimes and you look at those letters on the wall and you can't read them, well, because you don't have the right lens that you're looking through. And so the Bible is telling us that if you're going to interpret life and understand life, you need to have this paradigm, this lens of what Christ is like. Paul sees his ministry as weak in him, but alive by the power of God. Why? Because Christ was crucified in weakness. And yet Christ lives by the power of God. We need to understand the weakness part of Christ. Christ was crucified. This was the way that he saved sinners. And so, if you want to be a Christian, you want to live in this world, you also will take up your cross. You also will live a life of weakness. Do not be surprised at various trials that happen to you. Why? Because you're following a Christ who was crucified in weakness by the pattern, pattern, the paradigm of God, you're going to live a life of weakness. This is what Paul says about himself. He's just a jar of clay. Paul says he was afflicted. Paul says he was struck down because he's following and serving Christ. So if you don't have this paradigm, you will be surprised by your sufferings and your weakness. If you want to follow Christ, you're following a Christ who is crucified in weakness. Good news is, Christ didn't stay dead. He lives by the power of God. 
So this is another part of your paradigm that, yes, you will suffer in this world. Yes, you will be weak. Yes, Paul says he is a jar of clay, but the power of the gospel is at work through the jar of clay. Paul says, I was uh, afflicted, but not crushed, not crushed. I was struck down, but not destroyed. How will you be not destroyed? Because the power of God is at work in you. You live by the power of God. The power of God that brings a lifeless body of Jesus of Nazareth uh, from the dead. That same power is the one that enables you to live a life of weakness. Crucified in weakness, lives by the power of God. You are struck down, but you are not destroyed. This is what it means to live the Christian life life so paul says he has this power and christ is working even through through him as an apostle and so he's warned them that he's coming well now he calls them to examine themselves in verses five to ten remember this is the context I'm sure you've heard this verse before. Maybe you've heard sermons about this verse. But it is important to remember the context. Why should you examine yourselves? Because Paul is coming to visit. That's what he's saying specifically to the Corinthians. So we're going to go through verses 5 to 10. Then we'll come back to our own self-examination. So first, verse 5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So when you take the verse in in its context, you understand. What is Paul saying? Well, at the end of chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, he had said that he was afraid that when he comes, he is going to find all kinds of sin and immorality in the church. And so they need to deal with this immorality before he gets there. And because he's uncertain, he he sees that there might be this immorality, he's not sure if they are in the faith. Now, back in chapter 7, that was a long time ago, um, we saw, I think, the majority of the Corinthians are going to reconcile with Paul. He seems to be confident that they will reconcile. But there's this minority. There are these people who are still following the super apostles. And I think Paul is talking to that group that he doesn't know what they're going to do. He's not sure if they are repentant. He does not know if they are in the faith. And you can see his uncertainty because on one hand he says, don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you? He's hopeful that they are Christians because they're part of his church. But at the same time, he's not going to presume that they're Christians because he says, well, unless you failed to meet the test. I think, I hope Jesus Christ is in you But 
you need to pass the test. There's a chance you could fail this test. And so that's why he's warning this group of people to examine themselves. Then he says in verse 6, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Paul's making an ironic statement here because um, Paul's their professor. If you've taught any or maybe you've been in academic world, you, you know that if your students are doing really badly, they think there's something wrong with the professor. That makes the professor look bad. Paul was their professor. Paul was their teacher. He taught them the gospel. So what does it say if they fail the test? Well, then it makes Paul look like he wasn't a real teacher. But if Paul fails the test, if Paul is not a real apostle, that means they fail the test. Because that means they're not Christians. So you see he's kind of putting them in a, in a catch-22 here. If you pass the test and you think you're Christians, well, then you're saying I'm a real apostle. If you think I'm not a real apostle, well, then that means you're not Christians. So I hope you pass the test, Paul says. So he's talking about himself. I hope I haven't failed. And then he says this in verse 7. We pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. He wants them to do the right thing. He wants them to repent. And then he says, this is not so that I can pass the test. This is not about me as the teacher. This is about you. You need to do what is right. You need to repent, even if... I may seem to have failed. People might say that Paul has failed uh, because Paul doesn't come with the authority, the toughness, and the power. Paul doesn't want to come that way. And if he doesn't come that way, people are going to say, see, Paul's weak. He wants them, though, to repent. He cares more about them doing what is right than his own reputation makes me think in our day of all the abuse scandals that happen, have happened in churches and how abuse was covered up because they said it would hurt the reputation of the church. It would make us look bad. And people would know that we didn't take the steps needed to, to prevent abuse or people would know that we had a leader who was abusive. And so they thought it was better to cover up. Paul says, no, it is always right to do the right thing, even if it makes you look bad. Even if you may seem to have failed and it hurts your reputation, it always is right to do what is right. And that can apply to all of us. That can apply to us, especially in this world that we live in today where people will not like us for doing what is right. We will face the danger of having our reputations hurt or damaged. It is always right to do what is right. Though other people might say, you have failed. 
And Paul goes on, verse 8, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We must always do what is according to the truth. And then he finishes it up. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So Paul means he's glad to be weak. In other words, for them to think that he's weak as long as he is as long as they are strong. If they are repentant, if they are restored, he doesn't care how it makes him look. So again, he says, this is why I'm writing to you so that I don't have to come with severe authority but that now you might repent. So examine yourself. So let's now for us, let's go to the exam. Maybe some of you procrastinate on exams in school. Maybe others of you procrastinate on going to the doctor. But you know that not going to the doctor is not going to fix your problems. And the sooner you catch the problems, the easier it's going to be to treat. And so we need to go to be examined by the doctor. Thomas Brooks, in his book, The Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he says, there are four main things that should be most studied and searched by you. Christ, the scriptures, your own heart's, and Satan's devices. He was going to focus on Satan's devices, but today we're going to focus on your own hearts. Do you search your heart? There's the top four things that you need to know extremely well. You don't just need to know Christ. You don't just need to know the scriptures. You also need to know your own heart. Look at your own heart. Look at yourself. Scan your heart as we think about God's word today. So he says, test yourselves. Test yourselves. Now, as I hinted at earlier, there are two dangers here. There's the danger in verse 5 that you could be a Christian and not know it. That's the first thing he says. Do you not realize this about yourselves that Christ is in you? So here's the danger of a sermon, a a general sermon to, to many people, is that you could be too hard on yourself with this test. Some of you are very introspective. Some of you are melancholy, depressed people. You're always down on yourselves. And so it could be. There, there is a category of people who Christ is really in you. And you don't realize it. Because you're just so hard on yourself. Because of all of your sin. But then the other danger Paul mentions is. You could fail to meet the test. 
you could not be a Christian. And he's clearly talking to people in a church. And he's telling them to test themselves because they need that test. Because they probably think that they are Christians, and they're not. And so that's another danger. The danger of talking here just to all kinds of people is that I don't even know who's going to show up today. Who's going to walk through the doors? You might think you're a Christian, and you're not. And you don't want to go to hell. You especially don't want to go to hell because you thought you were a Christian, and you didn't examine yourself. Now, sometimes, many times it's helpful then to talk one-on-one about these things, to know where you really are spiritually, but here are some things that we can see in the Word of God. The letter of 1 John is written to have Christians have assurance of their salvation. And basically, in the letter of 1 John, he mentions three diagnoses, three ways to examine yourself to see if you're a Christian. And he says those things multiple times in different ways in the letter, but three things, basically. First, he says, you need to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God coming in the flesh. You need to truly believe in what I would call orthodox theology. You need to believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. You need to believe in Jesus Christ, that he is truly God and also truly man. And you need to believe other things like the fact that he died on the cross for sinners and he physically, bodily rose from the dead and many other things that summarized in things like the Apostles' Creed. You need to believe that. Someone who does not believe orthodox theology is not a Christian. They will not go to heaven. They will go to hell. Then... John says, you need to love the brothers. You need to love the brothers. And so this talks about how we are made to be part of the local church. We need to love one another. Loving the brothers doesn't mean you love your Christian grandma. Lots of people love their grandmas. The hard thing to do is love the brothers Week after week, people that you aren't family with, you aren't related to them, and yet you, you interact with one another, and you learn how to die to your own preferences for the good of others. Love the brothers. And so it is crucial to be part of a church, to have assurance of salvation. The third thing is to obey God's commandments. Obey God's commandments. Do what God says. Repent of sin. Get rid of the bad fruit. And put on the good fruits. Love, joy, peace, goodness. All these things. Obey God's commandments. Worship God. Be part of a church. All these things. Now, those are the basically three things that John says. But look what John also says about our hearts. This is from chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. 
He says, by this, by these tests, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So you see, it's about how you know, how you can have assurance. It's by these tests. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So, um, if you take these tests and if you pass the test, in some many ways you can have this confidence before God if your heart does not condemn you. you. You realize, oh, I passed these tests. But it's interesting what he also said in there. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Sometimes your heart, depending especially on the kind of person you are, your heart will condemn you. Your heart will say you're not a Christian. And John is saying that if you, that some of you, if you are true believers, God is greater than your heart. God knows that you are a true believer. You're not a Christian because you feel like a Christian. You're, you're not a Christian because you feel that you have repented hard enough. You're not a Christian because you love people. Those are all fruits. But those are not the basis of your salvation. Those can help you with your assurance. If you love people, that, it, that helps you grow in assurance to know that you are a Christian. But it is not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is God saving you through Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And so if your heart condemns you, that doesn't mean God has stopped saving you. Necessarily, if you're, if you're a true believer. It doesn't mean God has let you go now because your heart condemns you. No. God is greater than our hearts. The Confession of Faith has a great chapter, chapter 18, about assurance. And it says there are different times when our assurance is greatly shaken. And sometimes it goes up and sometimes it goes down. But our salvation rests upon the work of Jesus Christ. And remember that Paul is writing this letter to people who he has not seen in a while and who he is afraid there is outward immorality, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder, impurity, sexual immorality, sensuality. That's what he's heard about them. And so, of course, he's going to tell them to test themselves. That's different from this situation. One of the benefits of being a member of a church is it helps you with your assurance. To be part of a good church, at least, because if you're in a good church and you have anger and hostility and slander and gossip outwardly, and you have impurity and sexual immorality outwardly, people in this church, they would come and tell you about it. They would tell you if you're not living as a believer from what we can see on the outside. And so maybe you sit at home and you beat yourself up. I don't read the Bible enough. I don't pray enough. 
Well, if you're a member of the church, there is some assurance that comes from the fact that, look, if, if we haven't disciplined you, that's because we think that you're a member, uh, you're a true believer. And so we can look out and we can see how many people here are showing outward fruit of godly living. But there still is this need for self-examination. Because notice, I kept using the word outward. None of us can see what's inside of you. You can hide a lot of things from anyone else. And so you need to know that God sees everything and God searches your heart, but you need to search your own heart. You need to examine yourself because among the 12 disciples, there was Judas. And in Joshua's day among the nation of Israel, there was Achan who brought sin into the camp and it was hidden for a while. And among Paul's companions, there was Hymenaeus and Alexander who made shipwreck of their faith. Why would Paul work with someone who would make shipwreck of their faith? Well, because he didn't know it. He couldn't see it. Outwardly, they looked very good, but inwardly, there was sin, lack of faith. So examine yourself, because within you, there may be seething hatred and bitterness. Within you, there may be greed and covetousness and love of the world that nobody else knows about but you. Within you, there may be secret sexual immorality and lustful thoughts. So search your heart. Ask God to search your heart. Confess your sin. Psalm 32 says, when David sought to keep his sins hidden, he groaned all day. It was a burden upon him. Because God disciplines those he loves, and if if you are a believer, God will discipline you by having you feel the huge weight of guilt of unconfessed sin. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin if there is secret immorality in your heart. And if God is not disciplining you, if you're living life great and normal and you have secret sin, be careful. You may not be a true believer. So we examine ourselves, we examine inwardly in our hearts But we also examine, as Paul says, whether you are in the faith. See if you're in the faith. How can you be in the faith? There's only one way to get in faith. Accept, receive, and rest upon Jesus Christ. The righteous one the perfect Savior, the one who went to the cross to bear the sins upon himself for all of the people of God, to pay for everyone. To be a Christian is not to feel like a Christian. 
To be a Christian is not to be a good person. To be a Christian is to accept and receive and rest upon Jesus Christ only as Savior. John Bunyan says, The man that comes to Christ sees more virtue in the blood of Christ to save him than there is in all his sins to damn him. And so you can examine yourself right now and you see all the sin. All, maybe it's outward, maybe it's inward. Maybe you see pollution all inside. But here's what you need to see. That if you want to come to Christ, the way to come to Christ is to see that there is more virtue in the blood of Christ to save all of those sins than there is power in those sins to damn you to hell. So God's word says, examine yourselves. Don't procrastinate. Test yourselves to see what sin is in your life. And if you have sins, take them to Christ. Accept him, receive him, rest upon him as your Savior. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God who is holy, holy, holy. Before you, we are undone, for we are people of unclean lips. Who can stand in your presence? Lord, we pray that you would search us and know us, try us and test our thoughts. Help us to humble ourselves because we know that the one who exalts himself against you will be brought low. May we humble ourselves before you. And above all, Lord, we praise you that you are a God of unending grace. Help us to see much more power in your grace than there is in our sins. Help us to take all of our sins to Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.